0: Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. So, this morning's message is titled, A Joy That Cannot Be Stolen. A Joy That Cannot Be Stolen. Would you pray with me? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that your son died on the cross for our sins, so that we could have joy, we could have peace, so we could be in right relationship with you. We thank you for your Son, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that, that quickens our hearts and illuminates your Word to us as we dive into your Word. Lord, your Word is truth. Your Word is what we want to hear. And Lord, we know that, that when your Word speaks, that you speak. And I pray, God, that as you speak today through your word, God, that you would touch our hearts, that you would help us to apply your word to our lives. And I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was a, a little kid, my parents bought me those inflatable punching bags. You ever seen one of those inflatable punching bags? And it could have any type of character on it. You know, they were probably about like this tall-ish, something like that. And it was, you know, it, was, you know, it wasn't super thick, but, you know, it was tall and inflatable, and, and you'd punch it. I mean, you could wail on it as many times as you want. You could take a baseball bat to it, and you could hit it and punch it, and no matter how many times it would hit the ground, it would do what? It would, it would pop back up. I mean you could just hit it and you could I mean we tried as a kid over and over. Many of you had the same experience, didn't you? I mean you just punch in that bag and as hard as you can and it's a good way for kids to get out a lot of their aggression and energy, right? So in this same way it, it thought about I thought about well what what is it, what is it that caused that bag to hit the ground but then pop right back up? What was it that caused it to come back up? It was the sand, it was the weight, It was there was something at the bottom, there was some substance to it that no matter how many times you hit it, there was substance at the core of that bag that would cause it to, to come back up. At the bottom, at the foundation, there was weight. The foundation, there was weight. And in a similar way, this is what Christian joy is like. In a similar way, this is what Christian joy is like. The world hits on us and beats on us and 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 we get knocked down by situations and 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 but but there's a weightiness to our lives. There's something at the core of who we are that that no matter how many times we get knocked down, we we get back up, right? Because there's substance to our life, and and in in Jesus, in his closing words to his disciples, he's going to tell them that they will have a joy that cannot be taken, that cannot be stolen. They, they, they will have a joy that cannot be taken, cannot be stolen. And just hours before his arrest, Jesus comforts his disciples by telling them, you're going to have some sorrow. You're going to have some pain. You're going to have some agony and some grief, but you're going to have joy. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have pain. You're going to have agony. You're going to have grief, but there's going to be a joy that is going to come, and that joy can never be taken from you. A joy That cannot be stolen, no matter how many times you punch the bag, there's a substance that's going to be in your life. I think this is what Jesus is telling his disciples, and there's a foundation for that joy that Jesus is going to talk about here in this text in John 16. And just so we don't forget, Jesus is literally just hours away from being betrayed by Judas, being arrested by the Sanhedrin, and being taken away to a mock trial and being crucified. And it's amazing to me when you think about Christ that in the midst of his greatest trial, and you see it in the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll get to it next year as we go through John. In the middle of his greatest trial, he has heart, he has a heart and a mind for his disciples. And they're completely confused, but he's trying to comfort them. I love that about our Savior. So in this text, we're gonna see a joy. We're going to see Jesus talk about this joy that his disciples can have, and he's speaking specifically to these disciples, but it's to us as well. So let's look at the text. John 16, starting in verse 16, all the way down to 24. Let's let's read what God's word would say. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, you will not see me. And again, a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were asking, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while, you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Good section, right? Some beautiful truths that we're going to squeeze out of this text. You know, that's what we do when we preach. We look at the Word of God. So what I do when I study. I look at the section, I just squeeze. I want to wring it dry. There's so many things I could say. You know, most of the time I have three points, right? Just know that, that I could have six Every Sunday, seven. But but for the sake of your sanity and our time and our and our lunch plans, I only squeeze out so much so that we can get it and, and receive it and, and you guys aren't sleeping. Um so here's the main point of this section, I, I think. Um I think the main point is this is that believers have a joy that no one can take from them because their joy is not founded upon temporal circumstances. Believers have a joy that no one can take from them because their joy is not founded upon temporary circumstances. I think this is what the heart of this text is, and so we will see in this text today. Here's what we'll see: a contrast between what the world rejoices over versus the joy that believers have, or said said simply, worldly joy versus Christian joy. That's what we're going to see. So here's the first thing we see right from the text: the world. Rejoices when truth is assaulted. The world rejoices when truth is assaulted. Look back. John 16, 20. The first half of verse 20. Truly, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world will rejoice. So Jesus knew his disciples were confused, didn't he? I mean, we saw it in the text when we read it. He, he knew they were confused. And he knew, and, and this is kind of what I thought about when I was studying Jesus tells them these things, and then it's like they they huddle up, and they're like, "Did you understand that? What does he mean? A little while, and you won't see me. in a little while, we're going to see me again. I'm a little confused. Are you confused? Yes, I'm confused too. I'm like, I think that's what was. I mean, that's kind of what you did. You see that too when when I read that whole section. I think that's what's going on. And it says Jesus knew that they were talking amongst themselves about what it meant, and so He says, "Okay, let me clear it up for you. Truly, truly, I say to you." Truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Jesus says, let me make it plain. In a little while, I'm going away, and and you will be sorrowful, but the world will rejoice. So what did Jesus mean when he says he's going away for a little while? Well, I think the context, there's a couple of meanings, I think, to this context. We'll get to one of the meanings at the end of this message. But I think one of the primary contexts is the immediate reality of what's going to happen. Jesus is going to be arrested he's going to be crucified, and they're going to weep, and they're going to mourn. Then what's going to happen three days later? He's going to rise from the dead, and he's going to see them and be with them for 40 days, and they're going to rejoice. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. They're going to weep and mourn. They're going to be sorrowful because their Lord, their Master, their their Messiah is going to be arrested and is going to die. They will weep over his death. I think this is what Jesus is saying. You will weep and you will lament. The word weep there, when Jesus tells them that they're going to weep, the word weep there means an intense crying. Have you ever wept before? where does that, that intense crying come from? From the depth of your sorrow. And then he says that they will lament. This is next level mourning. This, you weep and you mourn and you lament. The, the idea of the word lament there is to wail. Have you been around somebody that is weeping silently? And you just see them, their, their shoulders are shaking and they're weeping. But have you been around somebody that is a loud weeper? And what are they doing? They are wailing. That, that, is, that is like a depth of mourning and sorrow. Uh, it's kind of the idea also of a funeral song. The word lament here that Jesus uses is the idea of a funeral song. So there's this deep mourning. He's telling them, you will be deeply sorrowful in a little while. You're going to be deeply sorrowful in a little while. Isn't that just something, a little side note to think about, that our Lord, he's warning his disciples, sorrow is coming. In this world, you will have tribulations, right? He's warning them, you're going to be deeply sorrowful. You will cry. You will weep. You will be heartbroken. Why? I think the reason why is because the disciples will feel that everything they had worked towards and everything that they hoped Jesus would be and would do is over. They're going to see his crucifixion as the final nail in the coffin to what they thought Jesus had come to do. They believed Jesus was going to be their Messiah who would, who would uh, free them from Roman oppression. And so when he is arrested and when he is arrested, they will scatter and they'll scatter and they'll flee. And when he is crucified, they'll watch from a distance and, and, they will, and they will go back fishing and they will abandon what they were there to do because they feel like it's all over and they will be sorrowful. They'll be sorrowful because their hopes are dashed. But the world... But the world? It's a whole nother story. What's the world going to be doing? Jesus said it, didn't he? You will weep, you will mourn, but the world will rejoice the world will rejoice truly truly I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice what does he mean the world will rejoice is all the world rejoicing over what's happening in Jerusalem I, I don't think all the world knew what was happening in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified but I do believe that what the word world means when you look it up in the original language it speaks more to the the evil world system of satan and so what Jesus is saying is, is that my disciples who are part, who are part of, of my life, who are follow me, they are going to weep and they're going to wail and they're going to lament, but the world and all of those that are fall under, under the, the jurisdiction and the authority of Satan, those that are following him, they are going to rejoice. They're going to rejoice. I thought about it. When you read the Gospels, who... who who was it that hated Jesus? Who, who did we see over and over again that hated Jesus? It was the Pharisees, wasn't it? And Jesus had many conversations with the Pharisees, and you would see their hatred come up over and over again, primarily because he exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed their hypocrisy. I, I, Jesus, you can see this in John 8, 44 through 45. Jesus really, he, he, cut, he cut through it here, didn't he? He tells them, the, the, the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. So who is it that hates Jesus? Those who are in alignment with Satan and his kingdom and are after Satan's purposes. Why do they hate Jesus? Who is it that hates them, but why do they hate him? Jesus said it, because I tell you the truth. Because I tell you the truth. Because Jesus speaks truth, people hate him. They don't hate him because of what he does. They hate him for what he says. They didn't hate him for the miracles. They didn't, they didn't hate him for being nice and generous and compassionate. They hated him for his words because Jesus speaks truth. Why do people hate Jesus, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus? Because he speaks truth. Because he represents truth. When Pilate, when Pilate talked about truth, what is truth? Truth was standing right in front of Pilate during the trial. He is truth. He represents truth. He speaks truth. And this is why people hate Jesus. Look at John 15, uh, starting in verse 22, or just verse 22. If I'd come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that I have, now they have no excuse for their sin. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? If I wouldn't have come and spoken truth, they wouldn't have been guilty of sin. But they're guilty of sin because I've confronted their error. People don't dislike Jesus because of his compassion. They dislike Jesus because of his words. The world rejoices when truth is assaulted. The world rejoices when truth in flesh is going to be crucified. The social Jesus who's here to fix societal trouble, who's here to make sure everyone is happy, who's here to fulfill our greatest desires, the Jesus who feeds the hungry even, the Jesus who gives Water to the thirsty. No one has a problem with that Jesus, but let Jesus open his mouth and start talking. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a, a sword. What does it mean he came to bring a sword? He came to discern and to speak and discern between truth and error, between lies and truth. And when Jesus starts talking, people start feeling uncomfortable. When the Bible is read, when Scripture is talked about, people start feeling uncomfortable you ever been in an uncomfortable situation when truth was spoken you ever been in an uncomfortable situation when truth is spoken I remember one time I was with my son Lincoln poor buddy he doesn't know I've talked about him a couple times recently you know he's 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 gonna be fine but uh, I was with Lincoln one time we were out in public and um, so we're walking around in public and a five-year-old Lincoln and there's a man that walks by and, and this man was really large it's a really big man. Um, not just muscles. You understand what I'm saying? It's a very big man. And Lincoln, the man was standing next to us in line. And Lincoln looks up at me and says out loud, Daddy, that's a big man. And I grabbed my phone as quickly. I mean, it was like instant reflex. I grabbed my phone, buddy. Here, won't you look at this on my phone? <laughs> like, quit talking. What you talking about? Talk about uncomfortable, uncomfortable. That's what I thought about. Uncomfortable. Was Lincoln right? Absolutely. I mean, look at his dad. I mean, look what he has to compare to, right? I'm, I'm not. I'm a, been skinny for a long time, right? So, like, he just he sees me. He sees it. daddy. That's a big man uncomfortable when Jesus starts talking the truth people are uncomfortable and in a similar way people don't want to hear that if you speak the truth about the world if you speak the truth about creation speak the truth about creation that we are created that there was a literal there was a literal six-day creation on the seventh day he rested when you speak the truth that we are not we didn't evolve from a, a cosmic accident and from a big bang we don't try to fit a big bang into the Bible, right? We believe that what the Bible says in Genesis, I can't wait to get to our series in Genesis uh, in the fall, in the summer, fall of next year. We're going to look at Genesis. We're going to go through uh, at least the first 11 chapters, and we're going we're gonna to base our reality. We're going to return to our basics and our foundations. But when you talk about what the Bible says about creation, people aren't going to like it when you speak about how we we're created in the image of God and how all life is valu- valuable, when you speak about how marriage was intended to be, when, you, when you, you speak about what God's Word says about gender and sexuality, when you speak about what God's Word says about premarital sex, when you, when you speak about what God's Word says about heaven and hell and judgment, people get uncomfortable. Why? Because... They're in sin because they don't want to be confronted. Here's why Romans 1 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. The world rejoices, Jesus says, when truth comes is assaulted. The world will rejoice. You're going to weep and lament because I'm going to the cross, but the world is going to celebrate Satan and his demons and all those that are under his sway. They're going to rejoice when truth is assaulted. In the same way today, the world rejoices when truth is assaulted. Love speaks to truth, my brothers and sisters. Love speaks to truth. Love speaks to truth because the truth will make you free. And when we lie about the truth, hear, hear me, when we lie about the truth, we hate people. When we lie about the truth, we hate people. First Corinthians thirteen six says this, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in what? In the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So I, just a question for you to ponder as we transition here. Are there relationships in your life that need truth to be told? Are there relationships in your life that need truth to be told? I mean, I'm, it, there's so many contexts for us for this to happen, right? May we not be like the world who rejoices when truth is assaulted. May we be like disciples of Christ that celebrate the truth, that, that, that even when in, in uncomfortable situations, we speak, to, we speak the truth. So think about your marriage. Think about relationships with your, with your children, with coworkers, with those in your life that you do life with. Are the relationships in your life where truth needs to be spoken? Next question is, is how do we speak that truth? How do we speak that truth? Because you can go about speaking truth and and, and and you can you can you can mess up relationships, you can destroy relationships with the way in which you speak truth. So how are we to speak the truth? Well the Bible tells us Ephesians 4:15, rather speaking the truth in in love. In love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is ahead into Christ. And so we must be people who love others by speaking the truth. The world And those that are under the sway of the enemy, they are the ones who rejoice when truth the truth of Christ is assaulted. But as believers, we're called to stand for truth. My brothers and sisters, we must be courageous today. We must be courageous. We must speak the truth. We must speak it in love, but we must speak the truth. We must live the truth. We must not just speak the truth. We must live the truth. May there be no incongruency with what we say and with how we live. May we live for the truth. May we speak the truth. May we hold true to sound doctrine. May we hold true to the word of God. So Jesus says joy, rejoicing. He says mourning. He says weeping. He says, I'm going away for a little while. You will be sad, but the world's going to throw a party. This is what the world celebrates. Do you remember earlier I said there's going to be a contrast between worldly joy and Christian joy? This is what the world celebrates. They celebrate sin. What's the greatest sin? A rejection of Christ. The world celebrates and Satan celebrates when Christ is rejected. The true Christ. So the world will throw apart you. Those who hate truth in the flesh will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful. Which leads to the contrast. Secondly, the believer's sorrow will turn to joy. The believer's sorrow will turn to joy. The world will celebrate, will rejoice when truth is assaulted, but the believer's sorrow will turn into joy. Look back to our text, back to John 16. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Again, Jesus is speaking to the earthly reality that his disciples would be overcome with sorrow and disappointment that their master had died. But then Jesus says something profound. There's going to be a transition you'll go from sorrow to joy, from sorrow to joy. What's Jesus pointing to? He's pointing to a process from sorrow to joy. You will be sorrowful, but then you'll be full of joy. He's pointing it from a transition from one state of heart and mind to the next, and and he uses an illustration to point to that. Look back to the text, verse 21. Here's here's how he illustrates a transition from sorrow to joy. And ladies, you can attest to this, those who have had kids. When a woman is giving birth... She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So do you you get the point Jesus is making here? There's a process. How many ladies remember when your hour had come? Remember when your hour came? Some of you that are sitting here and you're pregnant, your hour's coming. I can only testify by secondhand knowledge that it's not a pleasant experience. There's this needle thing they can help you with. <laughs> and I thank God for it. Thank God for my wife. I thank God for, for, for my wife. But the hour came. And, I, and, you know, I think if I could allow women to testify right now, if I, we talked and we said, hey, let's, we had time to talk to all the mothers. You do remember the pain. You don't, it's not that you don't remember. You remember the pain. But what happens is there's a transition from sorrow to joy and something greater overshadows the pain, right? That's Christian joy. You have sorrow, you have pain, you have grief, but something greater overshadows. You, you don't forget the sorrow, the pain, the grief, but something greater overshadows the joy. Or, or said another way, there's, there's a weightiness to the joy that comes, and it, it is greater than the sorrow and the grief. There's this transition. She no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that comes. Why? Because the pain is serving a purpose. The pain is not in vain. This is similar to what is said about Jesus in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus. An example of this. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he did what he endured, the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, but what you want. Let your will be done for the joy that was set before him. He endured the scourging. He endured the beating and the mocking and the spitting and the crown of thorns being crushed into his skull and the the lashing and and the ridicule and being naked in front of people. He endured all of that. Why? Because of the joy of obeying his Father, because of the joy of being in perfect, right relationship and obedience with his Father, and for the joy of what was going to be accomplished because of his obedience. He looked past the pain, and he saw the joy of redemption, the joy of salvation. Joy comes on the other side of sorrow. It reminds me of, Second Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The sorrows of our life, the pain of our life, it is at work to produce something in us. This light momentary affliction is preparing, it's working, it's doing something in us. It could be said like this. The miracle of the cross and the resurrection can transform our greatest sorrows into our deepest joys. The miracle of the cross and the resurrection can transform our greatest sorrows and deepest joy. can transform our greatest sorrows into our deepest joys. It reminds me of a story that I read of a pastor named R. A. Torrey. R. A. Torrey pastored the, the Moody Bible Church in Chicago from 1896 to 1904, 1896 to 1904, and his 12-year-old daughter died from diphtheria. So 12 years old. And, you know, I have a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, 9-year-old, 5-year-old. I can't imagine the grief that would come into a life when you lose a child. And the story goes, Ari e. Tori was in that lament stage, as Jesus told his disciples, you're gonna weep, you're gonna lament. R.E. and his family, his wife, was in deep sorrow. The funeral song was being sung from the depth of his soul. And he was out one day, walking down the street of his, where he, his house was, and he's out one day, and he's by himself, and he cries out, his daughter's name was Elizabeth. His daughter's name was Elizabeth, and he's, he's walking out down the street, and he cries out loudly, oh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth! And R.A. Tori says this, quote, And just then, this fountain, the Holy Spirit that I had in my heart, broke forth with such power as I think I had never experienced before. And it was the most joyful moment I had ever known in my life. Oh, how wonderful is the joy of the Holy Spirit. It is an unspeakably glorious thing to have your joy not in things about you, not even in your most dearly loved friends, but to have within you a fountain ever springing up, springing up, springing up, always springing up, springing up under all circumstances into everlasting life. Sorrow to joy. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. I'm, you're, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be crucified, and you will be sorrowful. In a little while, you will not see me. The world will rejoice, but you're going to be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn into joy. And I think that speaks to us today that in our sorrows and in our, jo- and in our grief and in our pain, we cannot lose sight of the fact that those sorrows and those, jo- and those trials and those griefs are a part of a process that the Lord is working in our life. They're not meaningless. They're not in vain. They're doing something in us. And it will turn into joy. Psalm 30, starting 30 in verse 3 says, You, Lord... Brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name for his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing and joy comes in the morning. You'll weep and you'll mourn, my brothers. but Joy's coming. Joy's coming. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this section. He says, God takes seemingly impossible situations, adds the miracle of his grace, and transforms trial into triumph and sorrow into joy. Amen. So, what are you walking through? What are you walking through? What trial are you? carrying on your shoulders into this room into this message what are you dealing with what about your life that jesus told these disciples clearly you know we can't necessarily relate they didn't even understand what he was saying because they didn't know he was going to die and we certainly can't relate because we weren't there but we have trials jesus promised we would have trials what are you carrying? What are you walking through? What is the weight that is on your shoulders? Here's the powerful thing. Here's a question I asked. I asked of the text. Jesus, how can you tell them that they will be sorrowful, but then they will have joy? If they didn't understand it, how could you tell them that they will have joy? How could he tell them that their sorrow would turn to joy? How did he know that? Because he knew that he was going to work. He knew that while they were weeping, he would be working he knew that while they would be sorrowful and weeping he would be at work he would be at work and so 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 i don't know what you walked in here with i don't know the deep sorrow and the pain you're carrying on your shoulders but always remember god is at work while you weep as the disciples wept bitterly jesus was working while peter was denying jesus was working While the disciples were confused and fearful, Jesus was at work. He was working. What was he working to do? He was working to carry the weight of all of our sin, our shame, our grief, and our suffering. God is at work while we weep. And that's why Jesus could look at these disciples, because he knew something they didn't know. And then that often what we need to rest our heart in, in our time of grief and sorrow, that our Lord knows what we don't know? And that's why we can rest in him, that he is at work. He's at work when we can't see it, and we don't understand. I I really relate to these disciples. They're so confused as we are. They're so confused as we are. But while... We are weeping. The Lord is at work. A little while and you will not see me. The world rejoices when truth is assaulted. In a little while you will see me. The believer's sorrow will turn into joy. So hang in there. Wherever you are, hang in there. And know that the Lord is at work in the middle of your situation. And cling to him. The world rejoices when truth is assaulted. Secondly, the believer's sorrow will turn into joy. And lastly... Here's the foundation of it all. The third reality here is that resurrection joy cannot be stolen. It can't be stolen. So we've seen the contrast, have we not? The world rejoices, and all those that are under the evil world system of Satan, they rejoice when truth is assaulted. The believer will be sorrowful, but their sorrow will turn into joy. You've seen the contrast? What's the foundation of that joy? What's well, resurrection joy that can't be stolen. Look back to the text, John 16. It says, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. (laughs) It's so good. That is so good. The heart of what Jesus is saying here in this entire section is as he is continuing his final words to his disciples is this. The heart is this, is the reality of his resurrection from the dead. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And the disciples, they can't wrap their minds around his resurrection. Why? Because they can't wrap their minds around him leaving and dying. They, they don't know what's happening, but Jesus does. He's saying to his disciples, he's speaking to them about a future experience that they will have. And they're going to get it later. Can you imagine when the light bulbs start going off in their heart? Oh, yeah, I got it. Oh, oh boy, did we, did we, oh, we blew it there, Lord. And we're going to get to John 21. I can't wait to get to John 21. Peter, boy, he blew it, didn't he? Oh, I love I love the conclusion, Peter's restoration in John 21. Jesus is saying to his disciples, you will be devastated, but you will rejoice. Now, I will look back to our text. No one will take this joy from you. When you transition from sorrow to joy, there's a reason why that that joy can't be taken from you because it is founded on something that is the greatest reality that's ever happened in human history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There's a joy that cannot be taken from you. Now, I might start preaching now. I I might start preaching now, so hang in there. What's Jesus getting at here? What's the heart of what he's saying? Simply put, because of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, all those who believe will have a joy that temporary circumstances cannot take away. Said another way, resurrection joy cannot be stolen. Resurrection joy cannot be stolen. It is victorious joy. It is undefeated joy. The joy for a believer is an undefeated joy. It cannot be taken. It cannot be stolen. It cannot be defeated because it is founded upon an undefeated Savior who, de- who destroyed death, hell, and the grave. That's why our joy cannot be stolen the joy that belongs to God's people because of his victory. God promised to his people that their joy will never be cut off. You <laughs> keep thinking about those disciples. They have no clue. But think about it with me for a moment. He's looking at them, and he's telling them this profound reality of something they'll understand later, and thankfully they, 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 they wrote for us, and we're studying it right now. Isn't that powerful? He's telling them this joy will not be stolen, and it's going to be because... Of his resurrection. That's why it's not going to be stolen, and that promise. This is so good. Almost came out of my seat. I was studying at Home Christian School. I, I go there on Mondays and Wednesdays. I'm at Home Christian School in my office there, and and Miko's sitting behind me, and and I'm I, you, Miko can tell you like, oh Miko, this is awesome. You gotta you gotta see this. Oh, this is so amazing. So this is a connection between a promise that the Lord is giving his disciples in John 16. And a promise he gave his people in Isaiah 55. Let me see if you can make the connection. So see how good I did at preaching up to this point, okay? Listen to this, Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be... You see the promise from the prophet, from the Lord to his people. You see the fulfillment in John 16. The Lord looks at his disciples and says, you can have joy, not because of anything within you, but because of what I'm going to do. And it's a joy that will never be cut off. No one can take this joy from you. Whew. An everlasting sign. A joy the world can't give, and a joy the world can't steal. The devil does long to steal your joy, though. He likes to try, doesn't he? But he really can't take it, no matter how low it gets, how dark it gets. <laughs> Jesus is always at work while we're weeping, right? He's always there. He's coming back. He's coming back. I just keep thinking back to the disciples. He's coming back. He's coming back from the dead. He's going to meet Peter on the beach. He's going to have a charcoal fire. He's going to have fish. He's going to have bread. He's going to restore. He's coming back. He's coming back. Jesus is always coming back. In the middle of our sorrow, in the middle of our grief, Jesus is always at work. And that's why our joy can never be stolen as Christians. It's Kind of like this, a piggy bank or Fort Knox. A piggy bank or Fort Knox. So what do you have your joy in? If you want to place your joy in temporary things and like pleasures and money and sex and relationships and career advancement, and if you want to place your joy in those things, it would be like this: you take a piggy bank, a porcelain piggy bank, and. And you put all your wealth in there and all your stuff you got in there that's, that's valuable to you. And you put it in there and you, you take that piggy bank and you, you go to the highest crime area that you can go to. And you, you stick it in the middle of the city and you stick it on a table and you stick a sign on it that says, that says uh, do not touch this because the contents are very valuable and you leave a hammer right next to it. <laughs> that's what it looks like to place your joy, to try to find joy in temporary earthly things. Or you can make the transition to Fort Knox. And this is what it's like with Fort Knox. If our joy's in Jesus, we exchange a piggy bank for Fort Knox. The devil gets a plastic spoon instead of a hammer, and you're a fool if you think he can get to it. Did you follow that? You're a fool if you think the devil can take your joy. If it's in Jesus, he can't take your joy. He may, be, he, he, he may try and he may give you a run for your money, but at the end of the day, Jesus is at work while you're weeping and when you remember the depth of his love and what he's done for you on the cross and all that he's accomplished for you in Christ, your joy, it's like, it, it's like that, that bag hitting the ground. It comes back up and you remember and the devil cannot take your joy. Christian joy is unbreakable. Christian joy is rooted in the power of Christ's victory over sin and death. So believer. Question, have you set your affections on earthly things looking for a joy that you know can only come from Christ? Christian, are you setting your affections on earthly things, trying to find contentment and joy, knowing that it won't do it? If you're here today, if you're a non-believer here today, if if you don't know the Lord yet, if you're not in relationship with Christ yet, Have you come to see the emptiness of a life lived apart from the true joy that can only come when your sins are forgiven and your hope is in heaven? You can have that hope today. You can have that unbreakable joy today. Today you can be forgiven if you will cast your mind on Calvary if you will look to Christ and you will abandon your sin, if you will see that Jesus paid your sin debt, that he absorbed the wrath of God that you deserved on the cross for your sins, and you will by faith place your trust in Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice, today you can be forgiven and you can have that foundation of joy in your life that the devil cannot take with his plastic spoon. You have Fort Knox protection of your joy. So, Our Christian joy is certainly resting. So follow me here. Our Christian joy is certainly resting on the fact that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have peace with God and a joy that can never be stolen. But, but, you remember I told you there's something else? I think I think there's a couple of meanings I, I I've I've read I've read lots of commentaries and in my study I think I think this definitely is speaking about his Jesus's death and his resurrection but I also think it's speaking about something else so a little while you'll see me no longer crucifixion sorrow a, a little while you'll see me resurrection from the dead sorrow turned to joy but look at Acts one. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their their sight. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. You said you're coming back and we'd be filled with joy. You said we'd be sorrowful, then we'd be joyful. But now we're sorrowful again. What's happening here? You will see me no longer, now there's sorrow again. Acts, this is the ascension of Jesus. He was he was arrested, he was crucified. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. He was with his disciples for 40 days. Acts 1 records his ascension. Acts 1:11. Men of Galilee, after the ascension, do you stand? Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. A little while. And you will see me, sorrow turned into joy. Second Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. A little while, and you'll see me again. I think he's speaking also of his second coming. A little while. So this life, with all of its trials and suffering. This life can be filled with great sorrow, can it not? This life and the crazy times in which we live can knock us down from time to time, but like the inflatable punching bag, we come up again. Why? Why? Because of the weightiness of the joy that comes from Christ. Because our heart with joyful expectation is looking forward to the day our Lord will make all things right. You look around our world today, I, I, I know you can get, get discouraged as I can get discouraged from time to time looking at our world and the state of affairs that are happening. But we have a promise that our Lord is victorious and he will ultimately be the victor and he will return and he will make all things right. He will judge the sinful and he will reward the righteous and he will make all things right. So here's, here's our call. May we live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may our lives be marked with a joyful expectation for the day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.